There are a few photos that I take every year for our whole family. And yeah, quite honestly, we're not the most sentimental photo takers in, in all the world. But uh, with some inspiration and influence from grandma, uh, we take a couple of photos in the same place in the same place every year. So one is in this um, uh, in the back of this hotel in Pennsylvania in this garden. And uh, the other is in front of our Christmas tree in our, in our living room every year. And uh, the phones are doing these things now where they like throw up a memory for you. And so I'm getting all these like memories of taking these photos in these same places over the years. And uh, it is, it is heartwarming. I'm, I'm realizing why so many of you take pictures and, and, and uh, I wish I was a little better at it. But having these photos in the same place every year is such a good way to mark the way time is passing, the way the years, the years go. And uh, our, our Christmas traditions do that uh, as well for us on, on some level. They, they help us to take, to, to take stock of, of what's happened. And this year has been so wild, and, and many of our traditions are having to be altered on, on some level. Um, but they still, these, these holiday traditions, they help us uh, sort of remember what, what we've gained, what we've lost, what, what's changed, what's, what's stayed the same. And uh, I love that about the holidays. I love that about moving through these traditional moments of the year. I remember when I was first getting to know Allison's family um, and, you know, you would sit around uh, like a Thanksgiving or a Christmas dinner and hear stories. And um, there was a couple of them that I just absolutely loved. And, and one uh, is a Christmas Eve story. It's a story of her dad uh, and, and her uncle Frankie and this tradition that they had of playing chess on Christmas Eve. So they get together, uh, they would split a bottle of Jameson and they'd play chess together on Christmas Eve. And then when Allison went to bed, they would... Uh, they would put her presents together, like a symbol, whatever needed to be assembled. And one year in particular, they were playing chess. Apparently, they'd gotten pretty loose. Um, they started to put together Christmas presents with a lot of gusto and enthusiasm. Uh, they got so ambitious that they put together Allison's entire backyard swing set, um, except they did it in the living room. And uh, so then they separately uh, fell asleep or passed out on different couches in the house. And Allison's mom, uh, who was a pediatric nurse for for her whole career wakes up really early in the morning and finds a swing set assembled in her living room and uh, the, the, the guys pass out on the couch. And I absolutely love that story. The thought of them waking up and groggily trying to disassemble the swing set before Allison wakes up is just a hilarious Christmas, Christmas memory for me. Um, and I do that, right? We do that. I, I start to think of my own stories as I'm hearing that story get told. And I remember uh, like I was 12 or something. I don't remember my exact age. And I got a roller hockey stick and a net for Christmas. And this is right around the time of the Mighty Ducks. And I remember that Christmas morning. It was warm out. The sun was, was shining down on me. And I'm just like out there reliving these scenes from the Mighty Ducks with my roller hockey set. Um, but I also have other memories, right? 16 years old, I remember sitting on the couch in my living room with my family, feeling like all the gifts represented that no one in this family really understands me, right? Everyone feels that way at 16, like that angst of, of no one gets me. I have um, a story of being home from college my junior year, and for um, I had begun to have these anxiety attacks, and they were really debilitating, and having these thoughts race in my mind that also came with like really strong emotional reaction and, and physical sensations that were deeply unpleasant. Not being able to stop them was, was terrifying. It was terrible. And I remember calling a mentor in the middle of the night. I think it might have even been Christmas Eve when I was home and having a life-changing conversation with this mentor about actually what it meant to, to live by the Spirit as opposed to just believe things about God. And 
It's a powerful Christmas memory for me. Now I think about in my own family, my own, my own life, um, you know, getting to play that last present trick on my kids where you give them everything and the one thing they've really asked for you haven't given them yet. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, why don't you go check in the lobby? Let's see what's out there. And all of a sudden it's like, there's the bike or there's the, you know, whatever it is. Um, this year as we were getting our Christmas tree, uh, I, I, I took a picture because Elijah my oldest, carried the tree home this year. This is a significant moment. I have always carried the tree home, gotten the sap on my jacket, and now he's doing it. It's sort of like this is, a, this is a significant moment. But these family stories, these rituals, these, these stories that we return to, they, they help us have some sense of our lives, what's going on here. And our, our small group was talking last week um, about everyone's favorite holiday movies, and we're going through the list. Some of them I hadn't even hadn't even heard. I realized like um, I've definitely like defaulted more to the modern, you know, elf elf sort of category of uh, of Christmas movies rather than the classics. And and I, when I was coming up, I didn't love a Christmas Carol. Uh, maybe that was one for you that you were you were into, but the Disney one was okay. But even that was I, I don't know why. But I, the ghosts were scary in the live action one. I'll, I'll maybe that was it. Uh, but also, it felt like the lesson was just right there on top of the story. Like there was like not enough subtlety or something. I was you know very sophisticated as a young person. Um, but it kind of made me roll my eyes. But now I appreciate it a little bit more. And. Um, I'm, I'm going to spoil it for you. If you haven't seen Christmas Carol at this point, I'm so sorry, but uh, you should have. Uh, you have this man, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, and he's lived with that name his entire life. That's a challenge on its own, right? Um, but we, when we meet Ebenezer Scrooge, we find that he needs to change, but he doesn't know it, and he doesn't know how to go about doing it. Um, he's selfish. He's grumpy. He's, he, he's mean, greedy. He has no gratitude. He has very little or no love in his life. But then he's given this profound chance in the story, right? His, his old work buddy, Jacob Marley, who incidentally has died and is now cursed to carry these heavy chains around, visits him in the night. Tough start, but he tells Scrooge that he has this one chance to avoid the same fate um, and that he's going to be visited by these three spirits. And so we, we know the story where he's given these three visions. He's basically taken on a tour of his life from beginning uh, to end through the past, the present, and the future. And in the, the, the past, he realizes how much love could have been his, right? He, we see these pictures of him sort of beginning the way of choosing self and choosing greed and choosing to ignore others. And he has this love relationship that falls apart because of his love of money. And, and then we come to the present story, and, and he's, he's giving this, this tour, and he becomes aware of how much pain is present in other people's lives that, that are around his life because of his greed, because of his selfishness, because of his sort of absorption with how much he can have in his own, in his own, in his own power. Uh, and, and he goes to see his own family's holiday party that he's not there, and he realizes how much he's missing out on. Right? He, he's witnessing this love in action. And then in the future... He gets a glimpse of where his life is, is heading on its current trajectory. And uh, what's the results of living the way you're living? We have this famous scene in the cemetery where he looks at the, the tombstone and it's his own name. And then he wakes up. And that's the, maybe that's the best part of the whole story. The, can you just imagine, right? Put yourself in Scrooge's place, the tremendous relief. You've had that feeling, right, where you're in a dream that just feels so real, so intense. And then all of a sudden you wake up and there's just like the flood of relief. It's sort of like a physical sensation of like, oh, I'm so glad I'm awake. I'm so glad that wasn't, that wasn't real. But then he has a choice. He gets to decide what he's going to do based on what he's learned from these visions. And we know Scrooge goes on to become a changed man. And 
I, we've never done this before, but I want to try try that a little bit in this in this last message of, of Advent this this year. Um, I, we're going to do something different than we normally do with our teaching text. You will have noticed we didn't have a teaching text read before we started the sermon. I'm going to read them as we go along because I want to loosely follow this uh, model of the Christmas carol. And, and uh, we're, we're going to look at pictures, visions, if you will, from the past, from the present, and from the future. Uh, three sections of visions, as a matter of fact, from the same author, not Charles Dickens, uh, but John, the evangelist, John, the gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I hope there will be an opportunity that we see to alter, to change our lives in response to these visions. So this morning we lit the candle of love. And I believe that these visions we're going to look at uh, from from the gospel writer John, they're, they're going to give us a robust picture of the love of God. So the first one uh, to follow the model is from the past, right? And this one actually is the most familiar. This is what you would expect from us on, on you know, the week before Christmas to be, to be talking about in church. This is a familiar passage. The opening of John's gospel is, uh, you know, whether you believe in, in the claims of Jesus or not, on its own, it is one of the most uh, powerful, poetic, uh, philosophically dense, theologically rich sections of the entire scripture. And right in the middle, sort of the, the thing is pointing to this famous verse that many of us uh, will be familiar with when you hear it read. But this is John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. If you'll remember, we began this Advent journey uh, in the first scenes of of Genesis. And we have uh, the powerful and even somehow personal presence of the Word of God in those opening chapters of of Genesis, calling creation, instigating creation into into movement, into existence, calling human beings into life in the image of God. Then we we moved a little further along into the story of Israel and and, and Isaiah and this famous poem in Isaiah 40 to 55 of the servant songs Again, we have this this powerful declaration that the Word of God is the way God's healing the world, and the Word of God will never return void. And and last week, we looked at the narratives around Jesus' birth and all the incitement and enthusiasm of the Word spoken, the Word embodying, the Word filling, the Word coming. And now John is giving us a picture of what that means. The Word has so many implications. For for his Greek hearers, this is the logos, the principal rationality and purpose in the world. For the the Hebrews, this was this mysterious person who's present. Is this wisdom? Is this the spirit? Is this the angel of the Lord? This this being that keeps showing up in the Hebrew scriptures over and over again. The one present at creation has come to us. The Word, the logos, has become flesh, has entered the story. And so um, John won't let us off the hook right? He's showing us this, this story, whatever else it's about, it's about creation and, and new creation. And this, it's all hinging in this climactic moment on this person of Jesus. I love what N.T. Wright says about, about these opening words of the gospel of John. He says, that's the theme of this gospel. If you want to know who the true God is, look long and hard at Jesus. The one we know as as Jesus is identical, it seems, with the Word who was there from the very start. 
the Word through whom all things were made, the one who contained and contains life and light. The Word challenged the darkness before creation and now challenges the darkness that is found tragically within creation itself. The Word is bringing into being the new creation in which God says once more, let there be light. That's where we began our Advent journey. That is where we've been coming all along is to God saying in the person of Jesus, in the most substantial way the world has ever known, let there be light. God is tell, uh, John is telling us, uh, no one has seen God, but now that very God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And this is the first vision. For us, this is something that has taken place in the past. It's not something that we have to add anything to of our own ability, our own accomplishment, our own plans, our own commitments to God. This is something God has done on His own. God has moved onto the block. God has come into the story, right? Um, the, 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 the long, challenging story of human history is that we cannot actually make things better, heal the world, repair ourselves, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to our, to our place of high calling and destiny, our place of our greatest loves even. But God, here's the message of the first vision, God loves us enough to come to us, to enter to enter actually his story, not just our story, but to enter the, the story of our world. God has gotten involved. Dor- Dorothy Day famously said, at least God has had the courage to take his own medicine. Uh, Fleming Rutledge in her book on Advent, I love these words, she says, something has moved. It is not human beings who have moved. It is God who has moved. This is the announcement, Emmanuel, God with us. We are not abandoned. The power that created the universe with a word and could equally destroy it with a word is not against us, but for us. God has moved, not we to him, but he to us. The angel Gabriel has bisected the ghastly yellow clouds. The sons and daughters will be raised from the dead. And the human family will be restored around the table of the Lord. I cannot tell you why it takes so long and why it costs so much pain. I can tell you this. We are speaking today not about human hopes and human wishes and human dreams, but about God. What is happening at Christmas is not from man, but from God. So this first vision is that God has come uh, to save us. And this is usually where we spend Christmas, right? This is our, our normal meditation um, in, in the church. We're not abandoned. We're loved. Can we, can we hear that enough? I think maybe we can't. Um, but, but the next vision is crucial as well. And we're going to um, call this the present, even though actually um, right, this is another section of writing later in the New Testament that's written by, by this same author, John. And the recipients are from long ago. The, the, the original writing was from long ago, but it describes a reality that is present for us now, that describes those who follow Jesus and what their life is meant to be characterized by. This is our way as followers of Jesus. Listen to this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. 
This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Hang on to that. Um, in this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. And whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. There may be no better summary of the gospel of Jesus and its implications than this section in 1 John 4. It is, uh, how is God showing his love? He sent his one and only son into the world to, to, to bear our burden, to enter the story to take on the pain but also to be our atoning sacrifice he's demonstrated this tremendous relational love of trinity coming to us in mercy to bring us into the family and then what becomes our identifying markers as members of the family that we live in this exact time of love that actually we dwell in it that we abide in it that becomes our home and the first vision is that god loves us enough to come to us to to dwell among us The Word made flesh. And this vision is that God loves us enough right now to share with us, to share His way of life, His way of love with us. His life is meant to become our life. The powerful message of Christmas is that that God has been made visible to us in the person of Jesus. And the powerful message of Christmas, the powerful message of the gospel, is that Christ intends to be visible in the world through you through your life, through our relationships, through the church, through how we love one another. That's meant to be the main defining marker of that we are followers of Jesus. There's a section in this passage that, that gets at the whole heart of the story. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is the word, and it's connecting the whole scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It's this word dwell. It's connected to John using the word abide uh, in Jesus' teaching in, in, in the gospel that God would make his home with us. You see it in Eden in the beginning. You see it in Israel's temple. You see it in the Pentecost as the temple becomes our our living body. You see it in the pictures we're going to look at in just a minute in, in Revelation. God loves us enough to call us into his life and to call us into his way of life. This is our present invitation. I've had a couple of opportunities in my life to meet some heroes, and you know, there's that like famous saying, "Don't meet your heroes; you're gonna, be, you're gonna be disappointed." I actually had some decent experiences. In 1991, there was no one bigger in my life, in my imagination, than Michael Jordan. And I had the opportunity at the Omni Hotel in Charlotte at the 1991 All-Star Weekend. My dad paid, uh, he greased the wheels, he paid some maids uh, with $50 bills, and we found out what floor Jordan was on, and we got to meet him. I got to stand in the bank of elevators with Michael Jordan. He was carrying his golf clubs. He was making fun of my dad for wearing a Celtic shirt, and I got to talk to him. I got to talk to my hero. I got to take a picture with him, have him sign a basketball. 
When I moved to New York, um, I had several preaching heroes, and maybe the biggest top of the list was Tim Keller. And I remember calling my mom, venting about how challenging this was and how it never seemed like we were going to actually accomplish the thing we felt God had called us to do. And she's like, why don't you just get a mentorship with Tim Keller? And I was like, Mom, his church is like thousands and thousands of people. He doesn't know me from Adam in the world. There's no way I'm going to get that. And then sure enough, a couple of years later, right, maybe the prayers of my mom, I ended up in this opportunity to train at Redeemer Presbyterian with a a church planting fellows program, people who were going to plant churches in the five boroughs. And Tim Keller was in there and he directly mentored us. And it was incredible. It was like getting to pick the brain of this man that I had respected and listened to so long. Uh, The last one, I promise I'm not just name dropping here, but out of no achievement or accomplishment of myself whatsoever, I got invited with a group of about 40 pastors to Rome a couple of years back. And we got to go in and have like a, a two-hour question and answer time with Pope Francis. It was unbelievable. And and hearing his teaching and some of the things he said, they've stuck with me for, for years. I'll never forget that that experience. And I think about that those, those chances. And in each instance, right, meeting these heroes, it was someone else who got got me in. Like it wasn't my own achievements. It was, I was, in a sense, brought in by grace. But um, it was outside of my imagined possibilities before it happened. And it was great, but then it ended. And I have a memory of it, but it's not the same as being able to go back at any point to the reality of that communion, to the reality of that connection. But here is the God of the universe saying to you, saying to me, I want to make my home with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to abide with you. You can never come into this meeting by your own strength, but I brought you all the way in. And I don't want just a one-time interaction that you can look back on that'll make a good story at a Christmas party. I want you to, to live with me. I want you to be at home with me. This is the way of love opened by the person of Jesus, made possible, as this text says, by His Holy Spirit. And it is open to you and I today to live in His love, to share His love, to be agents of that love in the world that needs it so desperately. So that's the past, the present, now for the future. We're going to do the future in two two parts. We've become so familiar with the child in the manger that maybe we're not challenged enough by that reality that that God has come into the world in, in, in this gentle way and can't even hold his own head up. That the God of the universe would have to have his soil diaper changed. Let that blow our minds. But I want you to know what comes next. What we're about to read here is also an Advent picture. This is from Revelation 19, something we're invited to hope for. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
There's so much in the imagery and the language of that that we don't even have time to fully unpack right now. But I want to invite you to meditate on these four pictures, not just this morning um, as, as we're looking at them, this past, present, and future, but all the way through Christmas, right? Through the rest of this year, we're not going to have a service on the 27th. I want you to come back to these pictures and meditate on this reality. We have the baby in the manger, and now we have this picture of this, uh, this, this king who's riding a horse, who is somehow a judge, who has, it looks like, who is the word of God that also has the imagery of the word of God coming out of his mouth, sharp as any two-edged sword. He, he's, he's fulfilling the words of Isaiah the prophet. He's filling the, the, fulfilling the pictures all the way back to Genesis. Here is the word of God made flesh in a totally new setting, not the weak baby in the stable, but a king who has come to judge. So I want to say this, God loves us enough to come to us. God loves us enough to share his life and way of life with us. And then God loves us enough to be a judge. And maybe that doesn't sound like tremendously good news to you, but I want to tell you, as intimidating as it is, it is very good news that this Jesus, born in the stable, goes to the cross, the resurrected one, is the judge, and these final pictures, as challenging as they are to interpret, uh, this is not something we want in the hands of anyone else. This is the one who has died for us. This is the one we want, judging the earth. But make no mistake, our lives have consequences. There will be an accounting for the time we've been given, for the opportunities that we've been presented with. And this isn't something we we feel terribly comfortable to returning to on a regular basis, but Advent is an opportunity for us to remember our hope in Christ's return, that one day there will be ultimately a setting right of this world. God God is going to come and make things right. The miscarriages of justice that we've become so familiar with in our world They're not going to have the the last word. Racism and oppression uh, will not win. Uh, Scandal and deception are not ultimately going to be victorious. Using violence to coerce and to keep power is not ultimately going to to be the triumph of the human story, right? And all the way down, our tiny tiny lusts, our little Scrooge-like obsessions with selfishness, whatever things have defined us, the accusations that have come pouring into our hearts and minds, those things are not going to have the last word about our life. The last word about our life is going to come from the one who was born in the stable, who died on the cross and is seen here riding this horse, faithful and true, who's out of his mouth comes the word of God and on his thigh and on his robe is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the one who has the final word about our world and about your life. 2020 has been so challenging, right? COVID and and. George Floyd and, and, and Breonna Taylor and the heartbreak, right? This week, uh, 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 or again, last week, K- Casey Goodson and, and, and all the heartbreak that's poured out of the COVID reality and, 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 and the tension of these elections and divisions in our families. And some of us have lost people to illness. And, and, and that's just our country, right? That we know there's, there's wars and rumors of wars ra- raging in the world. Who ultimately will come and set things right? Who will bring peace? The revelation, whatever else it's saying, it's saying the way of the dominant power of that moment, Rome, who's depicted as Babylon in the story, is not going to last. And ultimately, the worst ways of America are not going to last. Ultimately, our hope is not in any, any human government, but is in the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. 
It is good news that Jesus is going to be the judge, that Jesus is the judge. He loves us enough to set the world right, but we can't forget our lives have consequences. Advent is a strong reminder of that. It is loving to give us warnings of that reality. And the last scene in this future, I said we're going to do it in two parts, is what can love accomplish? And we get that picture in Revelation 22, 1 through 4. We're just barely hitting these passages. I really want you to hang on to them and meditate on them over the Christmas season. Uh, this is more than we can handle in, 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 one, in one sermon, but I want you to hang on to them through the rest of this year. Come back to these pictures. Let them do the work on your heart that they are able to do. Revelation 22, 1 through 4 is our last picture. It says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the, of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Ah, remember that from Genesis? Bearing 12 crops of fruit, <laughs> Israel, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Church, that is our Advent hope. Advent takes us from the stable to the throne. It takes us from the fall in the garden to the victory in the new Jerusalem. It invites us to live now in the time between in that love and that abiding, dwelling, God has come to make his home with us type of love. We can take radical risks of of sacrificial love in our everyday lives because we know there's nothing that can snatch the love of God from, from us in the person of Jesus. Look at God's heart on display. Whatever else you think about God, this is what God wants to accomplish. This is what His love can do. There is no more curse. The whole city is full of light. It's for the healing of the nations. Israel's finally accomplished its restorative vocation in the world. Um, His presence is there. It's the best of divine culture, the best of human culture, all in the same place. Right? This is the culmination of Genesis 1-3, through the culmination of Isaiah 40-55, to Jesus' birth, this picture of the new Jerusalem. It is God's heart to love that we would dwell with him, that we would abide with him, that he would make his home with us. Richard Balkum, who has one of the best commentaries on Revelation, he's written some of the best uh, uh, explanations of the, of the uh, challenging imagery of this book. I love what he says. In the beginning, God planted a garden for humanity to live in. In the end, he will give them a city. In the New Jerusalem, the blessings of paradise will be restored, but the the New Jerusalem is more than paradise regained. As a city, it fulfills humanity's desires to build out of nature a human place of of human culture and community. True, it is is given by God and so comes down from heaven, but this does not mean humanity makes no contribution to it. It consummates human history and culture insofar as these have been dedicated to God. Remember all the way back in the beginning when God seemed so insistent on sharing with human beings the, the, the rule, the dominion, the authority of His creation that they would take the natural resources and make tremendous 
tremendously good things. And like, like take these sounds and make music. To, you know, t- take this, this, uh, this tree and make a, make a rocking chair, make a table for your family to gather around. The beauty of taking this natural creation and making things good is part of our initial calling all the way back to the beginning. We're seeing it restored here as God is making his home with us in this final picture. The dimensions of this city are very interesting. Um, and I said, there's a lot of challenging imagery in Revelation. I'm going to give you Richard Bauckham one more time, and then, and then this will be where we close. The prophets had gone far towards envisioning uh, the whole city as the place of God's holy presence, as his true holy mountain. But John seems to have been the first to eliminate the temple altogether. The city needs no temple, a special place of God's presence, because the whole city is filled with God's immediate presence. As a result, the city itself becomes a temple. As well as features already mentioned, the most striking sign of this is its perfectly cubic shape. And I'm like, what? Yeah, the city's a square. What does that mean at all? It is like no other city ever imagined, but it is like the Holy of Holies in the temple. The radical assimilation of the city to a temple taken further in Revelation than in its prophetic sources shows us how central to the whole concept of the New Jerusalem in Revelation is the theme of what? God's immediate presence. What's he saying in, in all that commentary? He's saying in 1 Kings 6, when it talks about the description of how the Holy of Holies is meant to be built in the temple, it is a perfect cube. And when you see the dimensions of this new Jerusalem, it is a perfect cube. And the, the, the imagery, the metaphor, the picture is, is not to be missed. The dimensions are the exact same. The reality, <coughs> excuse me, the exact same as the Holy of Holies. This place, this city, is meant to be the place of God's immediate presence. And that's when you see when Jesus is on the cross, the temple is, the curtain and the temple is torn. And what is that closing off to us? The Holy of Holies. But the Holy of Holies is going to become a city that we live in forever with God, with one another. We put ourselves in the Advent story of those waiting on Jesus to be born, Messiah, the promised one. We put ourselves now in the story of those waiting on this city to come, God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. He is creator and he is recreator. We celebrate creation and new creation, those moments in life, right? The sun is breaking through the towers of clouds over the ocean and you celebrate creation. But then you have moments like a man shedding tears. He's two years sober and he's at his grandson's graduation and his higher power has a name. He's come to know, right? That's new creation. Creation is the, is the mountain stream that's tumbling down through the pass and, and you want to take the picture there as it, as it spills into the pond in the forest and, and, and there's the beauty of the silence of, of, of that stream in the forest. But then you have a woman lifting her hands in praise because she's tasting forgiveness that she's never thought possible. Creation and new creation. You have one of, one of our kids standing in the, in the park as a hawk stretches out its wings against the, the, the blue sky going from tree to tree in a familiar setting, creation. But then you have someone who's exhaustedly worked for approval their entire life and never felt loved, finally knowing that they are truly accepted and embraced by God and by a community that loves them new creation. Advent is a story of the already and the not yet. It's the story of creation and all of its brokenness and also its healing and the healing we're longing for in new creation.
I want to wake up with the relief that Ebenezer Scrooge had knowing that I have an opportunity today to live fully alive in that love. This is not, this is not just a candle that we have lit. It is the very thesis of God in the universe to bring us into his love, to make his home with us. He has gone to extravagantly great lengths, willing to be born as a baby, to die on the cross, to come as a judge, to bring us in to this city. Will we be changed by this love? Will we offer this love to our neighbors? Those are the Advent questions. Let me pray for you, church. Heavenly Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we could just have an encounter with your love today. Fill us, God, with your presence. Lift up Jesus in our midst. May we see him in the past. May we see him in our present. May we know confidently that we will see him in our future. And may that change everything for us. May it fill us with your love. May we take radical risks of love and generosity and peacemaking and justice doing. Help us to be your sons and daughters, alive in your love. Make your home with us. In Jesus' name, this Christmas. Amen.